Luke chapter number 22, and what a blessing it is to be in the house of God with you tonight, and I appreciate the Lord, amen, I appreciate Him meeting with us, working in our hearts and lives, we don't deserve any of that, amen, but He's a gracious God, and I'm thrilled to be here tonight in the house of God with you. Luke chapter 22, we find ourselves in this passage of Scripture on the eve before the crucifixion. And I want us to take a few moments, and I want to look at a comment that the Lord Jesus makes, a word of warning and comfort that he gives to Simon Peter on this night. And I probably won't say anything you've not heard before, uh, but I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance and encourage you a little tonight in the Word of God. Luke chapter number 22, verse number 31. Luke chapter 22, verse 31. The Bible says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day, before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the word of God, that it's inerrant, infallible, and that it's preserved here whole before us. And that as we approach your word, we don't have to parse through it to try to find your thoughts. But Lord, we can take and any portion of it that we read, we know we've got the very word and words of God. So I pray that you'd speak to our hearts tonight through the preached word. I pray that Christ would be glorified, and I pray that real eternal work and business would be done in us by your hand and by your wisdom. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I would imagine that if you or I were Simon Peter, we would be shocked, alarmed, startled, and sobered by what the Lord said to Simon Peter in this passage. I don't really know what the mind frame of Peter is, but he seems to be of a militant disposition in this chapter. He seems as though he is ready to take on the world, fight anybody around, whoop them all, Lord, we'll get them. Here in a few moments in the garden, when the soldiers come to arrest the Lord Jesus, Peter will take sword in hand, and he'll wield it, not like a swordsman, but like a fisherman. (laughs) And he will try to cut through a crowd to get to the traitor, Judas Iscariot. In that process, he'll cut a man's ear off, whom the Lord will then heal and restore. Makes you wonder how many times we lose our temper and lose somebody's ear in the process. They won't listen to us no more because we let the flesh take control. But all that summed together and some of the things that Peter says in this passage remind me that he is a man that is looking for enemies on every hand. And yet when the Lord Jesus approaches him with this word of warning, Far from seeing immediately and starkly the danger that he himself is in, he instead acts flippant, dismissive, disregarding the warning that the Lord Jesus gives to. wonder how many times we think the enemies are all around us, but really the greatest enemy we face is the flesh within. And then, of course, the devil that would seek to exploit that flesh for his purpose and to his ends. Peter is a man who has just been warned that he is on Satan's short list. And I wonder in our life, you know, I know a lot of Christians who they blame everything on the devil. 
You know, one of the things I love about the book of Job, you've heard me say this probably, but one of the things I love about the book of Job is all throughout the book of Job, Job refuses to give the devil credit for anything. Uh, over and over again, he says, The Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the show. Receive good at the hand of the Lord, and not evil. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Well, I bet that rankled the devil, not get any credit for any of that that he had done in Job's life. I know some Christians that give the devil too much credit. Every every consequence for every bad decision they make in their life, it's the devil's after me. My, they put old Flip to shame. It's always the devil that made them do it. But I do recognize when I read this passage that there is absolutely satanic opposition against the child of God. And that just as the Lord has a will for your life, so also does Satan have a will for your life. I think we often ask the question, are we doing the will of God? But how often do we ask ourselves, am I allowing the will of Satan to be carried out in my life? I would say when we look at this passage on the whole, we would have to say, and I don't believe Peter would dispute this, that in many ways Satan got his wishes in the life of Simon Peter on this night. I want you to think with me for a few moments about this passage of Scripture. And I want to show you three thoughts that the Lord spoke to my heart about. As I said, I, this, I'm probably not going to tell you anything you've not already heard, but it's what's on my heart tonight. And I want to preach to you on this topic, being sifted. Being sifted. There's going to be times in your life you're going to go through a sifting process. What does that mean to be sifted? Well, I want you to notice verse 31. And first, I want you to hear a word of caution that our Lord gives. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. In this simple verse, the Lord reveals two things. There's many things that are touched on, but two primary things to Simon Peter. First, he says a word about Satan's target. He says, Simon, the devil is looking for you. He desires to have you. He wants to possess you. He wants to wrest you away from my protection and from my authority and from my providence. And Peter, if you're not careful, you'll allow him to do that very thing. Can I say to you, hey, listen, it ain't just the Lord that wants us. The devil wants our life too. And you say, well, why would the devil want my life? Because he doesn't want God to have your life. He resents the notion that God would be able to govern you and to guide you and if for no other reason, merely petty jealousy would be enough for him desire to possess you. But I want you to notice carefully how the Lord describes this. Now, I'm not the first preacher to say this, and I'm not the first preacher you've ever heard say this. But notice the double call that the Lord gives in this passage. Now, there's only a handful of times in your Bible that a double call is given, and even less that it were given during our Lord's earthly ministry, and it's often been observed that for the Lord to say something once is enough, but when He says it twice, He's really trying to get a person's attention, and certainly it's true both then and now that when you say a person's name twice, it is to imbue an emphatic focus on what's about to be said. He's saying, Peter, what I'm about to tell you is not casual, it is not incidental, it is not unimportant, but Simon, it is one of the most important things you can possibly ever hear in your life. Can I tell you, hey, listen, a preacher, a preacher may love you when they tell you how good God is, but they are showing love to you when they tell you how wicked the devil is. 
Because the fact is, hey, uh, it's important that we know the goodness of God, His grace and His mercy and His faithfulness. Uh, But God's going to be faithful whether we recognize it or not. The devil, though, will gain an entrance in our life if we're not vigilant against what he seeks to do. So he gives a double call. But he does not just give a double call. He uses a particular name in the giving of it. Now, Simon Peter was a man that went by three names that we know of in the Bible. He went by Simon. That was sort of his natural name or his given name. He also went by the name Cephas. And he also went by the name Peter. Now, the Lord had given him the name Peter. And in doing so, had implied a great spiritual importance, a work that God had done in his life. But more important than that, how that that work would reflect a greater work that God would do through the Lord Jesus Christ. But suffice it to say, for our purposes tonight, that Simon was his fleshly name, and Peter was the name that the Lord gave him. And it's interesting that the Lord could have called him by any of those three names or any combination of those three names. But he wants to drive home to Peter where his infirmity, where his frailty, where his vulnerability lies. Can I tell you, if your life winds up a mess, it won't be because someone did that to you. It will be because you permitted it in your own life. You see, Peter's greatest foe in this passage You say, well, preacher, it's the devil. He better look out for the devil. He better watch the devil. That's true, but the devil couldn't have gained an entrance in his life if he hadn't yielded first to the flesh. All through this passage, you know, Peter, uh, over and over again in the Bible, he sort of rises to these mountaintops of of revelatory knowledge and just glory. I mean, he just... uh, Peter's one of them people. I've known people like this in my life. They can be real spiritual occasionally. But my soul, there are times that Peter takes that big size 12 fisherman's boot and sticks it right in his mouth and says all the impossibly wrong things. And it seems like he is a man, though tempered by the Holy Spirit in the later years of his life, who in the early years of his life seems to be prone to instability. And here in this passage, when you read, I don't know how to say it any other way, Peter's a hot mess throughout this chapter. I mean, he's just all over the place throughout this chapter. It is glaringly apparent to me that he is a man that is energized and driven and motivated by the impulses of emotion and of the flesh. I'll tell you one of the reasons, and God is not anti-emotion. God created us with emotions. But let me tell you why you better be spiritually led and spiritually driven in your life. Because the devil can't take advantage of the Spirit of God, but he can take advantage of your emotions. You say, how would he do that, preacher? Well, listen, it's not so hard to do that. Politicians do it all the time. Media does it all the time. The cult of culture does it all the time. Disney does it all the time. Amen. I mean, that's what they do. They, they understand. They, they, with their uh, little uh, poli-sci degrees, go along and, and, and they just pull the levers on the masses and control them. You think the devil can't do that? Sure he can do that. And so he's warning Peter of what is really the great danger that is in his life that Satan desires him and that his flesh will deliver him up bound hand and foot to the will of Satan. We see Satan's target in the first half of verse 31, but notice Satan's tactic. Satan desires to have you, Peter. What does he want to do to you and what does he want to do with you when he gets you? Well, this is what he wants to do, that he may sift you as wheat. 
That's an interesting phrase, and we'll say a word here in a moment about the sifting process. But just as a short description and definition, sifting is the means whereby the the harvesters would take and separate that which was legitimate and real and substantial from that which was fake and hollow and worthless. Often the chaff would grow up with the wheat, and when they harvested it, they'd harvest it all together, and then the a person would have to take it and separate that which was good and that which was substantive from that which was hollow and that which was fake. Now, there's two ways that we can understand this passage and this phrase. It could be that the Lord is saying, Satan wants to purge your life of that which is fake and preserve in your life that which is genuine. I don't believe the devil is that kind. I think rather what he's saying is this, Peter, the devil thinks you're phony. He thinks you're fake. He thinks there's nothing to you. And he thinks with a little bit of energy and effort, he can blow you down the hill and never have to be bothered by you again. Can I say that Satan desires to sift you and I as well? How does he do that? How do we find out who and what we really are? I'll tell you this, we don't learn anything about ourselves when things are good. But it's in trials and it's in afflictions that we begin to learn something about who and what we are. Peter learned as much as anybody else learned through this trial. It is apparent as you read through the books of First and Second Peter that Peter's mind is never far removed from what happened on that evening. It changed him what he went through. And you know, the things you go through and the things that Satan will put you through will change you. What does Satan try to do? Well, it's interesting. When they would take this wheat, they would violently shake, thrash, beat it, and throw it up into the air. And then they would have people who would have fans. This, the Bible talks at times about the Lord having His fan in His hand to purge the chaff. And what they would do is they would have these big fans that they would wave. And the wind that would blow across the wheat and the chaff, if it was wheat and it had kernels within it, it had substance to it, the wind couldn't blow it away. But if it was just chaff and it was empty and there was no substance to it, then that wind would separate the wheat from the chaff and would blow it away. What does that say to us about what the devil wants to do to us? I'd say there's about four things involved with it. Let me say number one, he wants to lift us up. When they were sifting that wheat, part of the process is they'd have to take it and they'd have to heave it high up into the air. We see that the devil starts sifting Peter before this passage is even done. I mean, the Lord of glory, the omniscient God, the God that cannot lie, says, Peter, the devil's going to try to destroy you, but I prayed for you, you better have faith. And Peter's answer, instead of falling to his knees and saying, Lord, I need you, I need your strength, I need your help, I need your presence, give me wisdom, give me power, give me unction, help me to know how to respond in the hour of crises. Instead, notice what he says. Lord, I am ready. Not, Lord, you're enough. Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. You know, often people's greatest downfall begins when they are lifted up. This is why it seems when you behold life that life is a series of valleys and mountains. Well, we could be cute about it and and observe that, you know, every valley is bordered by two mountains. But more often the reason that is true for people in their life is because we're so frail that when we get a little bit of breathing room, when we bask a little bit in the daylight, 
instead of stopping and giving glory to God and staying humble, we're so prone to heap praise upon ourselves. And listen, pride always goeth before a fall. And it's not long and our life has been made a mess. Uh, it, it is not necessarily the disparaging that we need to be so so weary of, but rather it's the praise that men heap upon us that we need to be weary of. It, it is not so much when people try to discourage us that is so dangerous. It's when people try to uplift us that we need to be cautious about. I see he wanted to lift him up. And then not only would they lift that wheat up, but they'd also beat that wheat down. In order for it to be separated, they had to break up the, the, the holes and they had to, to separate the, the sheaves and, and often they had to dislodge that which was just riding along pretending to be substantive. So they would take it, not only would they lift it up, but before they did that, they would take and they would beat it on the ground to try to break it and to try to separate it. And I will say that not only will the devil seek to lift you up, he'll also seek to beat you down in life with sudden violent force to provide a shock so terrible that it dislodges us from where we rightly should be. You know, the devil will try to do that. Sometimes sometimes it's a war of attrition, and sometimes it's shock and awe. Sometimes he'll hit your life so hard with things you never anticipated. What's he trying to do? He's trying to break your spirit. He's trying to break your faithfulness. He's trying to break your commitment to the Lord. Say, preacher, can he do that? He's done that to many. He's done that to many. But he don't have to be able to do it to you. I see he wanted to lift him up. He wanted to beat him down. But then he wanted to shake him around. In other words, they would take this wheat and they would then begin to shake it to try to dislodge the pieces. You get in the picture we're getting to, it's a violent process. Sometimes the devil will try to shake your life, try to turn up, down, and down, up, and try to make everything that you thought you knew to be true to be completely opposite. Peter will learn. He'll be disabused of this notion that he's above it before the, the morning comes. And Peter will do things he would have never thought himself capable of doing. One of the reasons that this is so traumatic for Peter is because he... Just like the rest of the disciples. I mean, up till they nailed him to the cross, they really struggled to accept the fact that he was actually going to die. That's the reason that, that Peter, when he says, I'll go into prison and to death, what he's saying is, we won't let him take you, Lord. We'll die if we have to in this garden, if that's what it takes. I'll do whatever I have to do. And it's apparent he had not really coped and reckoned with the fact that his Lord and his master was going to go as a as a sheep to the shearers and as a lamb to the slaughter and was going to lay down his life for them. He did not envision a cross for Jesus. He, like the rest of the disciples, envisioned a crown. But before the night would be done, before the next day would uh, fall into evening, he, everything he thought he knew, would be turned on its head. I wonder if we'll keep our balance when everything in our life has been turned on its head. I don't know about you. I like familiarity. I do. I was I was watching that football game last night, and I started getting nervous when they ran that big, long touchdown run because I thought they might win this, and I don't know what I'll do then. Amen? 
I'd rather them lose and me be familiar with it, Brother Ken, than them win and me have to try to decide whether I believe in our football program again. We're, we're creatures of familiarity. We like familiarity. We like things to be a certain way. And you know, there's some people that all the devil has to do to wreck their life is just put them on the opposite footing for a little while. He wanted to shake him around, but then those men with those fans in their hand, what were they trying to do? They were trying to blow away that which has no weight and that which has no substance. And sometimes in our life, the devil will try, and I'm glad, listen, he's not the master of the sea. He's not the God of winds. But I do recognize that he can conjure up some opposition against us. And sometimes he will not beyond or outside of the realm of God's providence, mind you, but sometimes the devil will try to bring storms into our life to try to destroy us. I wonder if you'll still be who you are when it feels like everything's working against you. When it feels like everything you thought you knew has all of a sudden shifted and changed. Verse 31 gives us a word of caution. But I'm glad the Lord doesn't stop there. Verse 32, he says something precious. He says, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. This entire verse is pregnant with hope. From the very first word till the very last phrase, it all is dripping with optimism, promise, and hope. I'm glad when it's darkest, the light of His glory is not diminished. I'm glad when it's hardest that he's still in control. And the first thing we see in this word of comfort that he gives is the prayer he mentions. I like that word, but I have prayed for thee. All the forces of hell are set against you, Peter. Lord, that's terrible. Don't worry about it. I've prayed for thee. It reminds us of the potency of the intercession and advocacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is no mean or small thing to have him as our high priest. Hey, seeing we have a great high priest which is passed into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession of faith without wavering. You'd be amazed what you can stand against with Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. You'd be amazed what you can withstand in the evil day with a great high priest advocating for you. And here we find Jesus praying for Peter. Notice what he prayed. He said, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Boy, that's an interesting phrase. I'll tell you how we read that. This is how we read it. I have prayed for thee that thy faithfulness fail not. That's how we read it. But that's not how, that's not what he said. You see, if, if you're still serving God at the end of this sifting, it won't be because your faithfulness didn't fail. It'll be because your faith didn't fail. I think sometimes we view faithfulness as just a raw, determinate uh, commitment to do right, even if the stars fall. But can I remind you that faithfulness is only effective and it is only renewed and energized and recharged and strengthened through the means of faith. There are a great many people struggle in faithfulness, and it's not because they don't want to be a faithful person, but it's because they struggle in faith. 
the Lord says to them, you need, you need to be in church. And they struggle to believe that. The Lord says, you need to be reading your Bible every day. And they struggle to believe that. The Lord says, you need to pray always and to pray without ceasing. And they struggle to believe that. And because of a lack of faith, their faithfulness suffers. Peter's faithfulness would not hold on this night, but his faith did. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, when you come out the other end, he has lost faith in himself, but he has not lost faith in Jesus. When the Lord turns and looks upon him as the rooster crows, he wept bitterly within himself. Why? Because he knew who it was he had betrayed. I don't know about you, man, but probably if I'd done what Peter did, I'd left town, changed my name, got a new Facebook account. I mean, you wouldn't even find me. I mean, not even not even the FBI could find me. Even if they thought I was a Trump supporter, they couldn't find me. I'd be gone, man. Why didn't Peter leave? Well, he had already answered it. To whom would we go, Lord? Thou hast the words of life. His faith did not fail. His faithfulness did falter. He was not faithful to the Lord on that night. But it was not his faithfulness that Christ had prayed for. It was his faith. wonder why that is. Christ could have prayed for his faithfulness, but he instead prayed for his faith. You know, you know why that is? Because the faith is the fundamental thing. God could cure a breach of his faithfulness, but God couldn't cure him giving up on his faith. And so he prayed for the fundamental thing. For his faith. I see his prayer. But then I see the plan that he had. And and it's not as much that I want to talk about what the plan is. I just want to notice he had one. He says, when thou art converted. Commentators have argued uh, for generations about what this means. Mostly because I've never written a commentary. They didn't know what to believe. I'll tell you what I believe. I don't believe when it talks about converting that it's talking about it in the sense of the new birth. I believe rather he's saying this, Peter, this is going to change you, what you're about to go through. You see, Peter would fulfill the command given in Luke chapter 22 when he pinned down First and Second Peter. He would understand about that roaring lion that walked about seeking whom he may devour. He'd understand about staying steadfast and trusting the Lord, not because he had done it perfectly, but because rather he had failed and knew the importance of it. And he would write to people suffering in exile under deep and abiding affliction and encourage them that the Lord's faithful even when they fail. It changed him what he went through. And what you go through in your life, if you're sifted, it'll change you. That's not a bad thing. The Lord has already taken into account the change. Now you say, well, preacher, he could change me in a negative way. Sure. Will you let it? Or will you purpose in your heart that it's not going to bitter you, it's going to better you. It's not, it's not going to wreck you. Instead, it's going to be a source of glory for God throughout your life. What are we going to do, Lord? What are we going to do, Lord? I've got a plan, Peter. When you come out the other side of this thing and you're a changed man, I've got a plan. I see the prayer, I see the plan, but then I see the purpose behind it. When thou art converted, Peter, strengthen thy brethren. The Lord would be for Peter what Peter needed. But in turn, the Lord expected Peter to be a source of strength for others as well. In other words, there was a purpose to 
of what he went through. I don't know the purpose behind everything you or I go through. If I did, I'd put it in a book, make a billion dollars. I don't know why you and I go through what we go through, but I do know it is not senseless. Because what my Bible teaches me about my omniscient, omnipotent God will not permit it to be senseless. I may not always see the sense in it, but I know that God always has a purpose. It's interesting to note that that purpose wasn't for Peter. It was for others. Sometimes some of the greatest battles you'll go through in your life will primarily be for the benefit of others. And I will tell you this, that when we suffer for the benefit of others, we never look more like our Lord Jesus than we do at that moment. It's interesting that Peter himself would be the one to pin down that the Lord Jesus has left us an example of suffering that we should follow in his footsteps. See, Peter had learned that sometimes God cannot just bless you through your suffering. He can bless others through your suffering. And sometimes there are things that God wants to do in others that he can only do by putting you through the sifting process. I see in this passage a word of caution, and I see a word of comfort. But in verses 33 and 34, I see a word of clarity. Now, it's important to know we could have stopped at verse number 32, and you would have probably been the more glad for it. But it's important to know that the interaction doesn't stop. Peter opens his mouth and answers to his great shame and regret. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. I will say that this closing point in this message is not an uplifting one. It's a cautionary one. It's not meant to make you feel bubbly and warm and good inside, but it's preventative medicine. And I just want to be honest and I just want to be straight with you. You see, things didn't end well for Peter in the short term. Now, we know because of the faithfulness of God that God wasn't done with Peter. But I promise you, if you're sitting where Peter is sitting in this moment, the ideal scenario is not that after making a wreck of your testimony and your life, God in His grace and mercy restores you. What you'd rather prefer is to never make a mess of your life in the first place. You say, preacher, if I've made a mess of my life, will God forgive me and restore me? Sure He will. Sure He will. I encourage you, we won't preach it tonight, but you ought to spend a little time over in uh, John chapter number 21, read about some of the things that the Lord did in restoring Peter. Everything on that night, from the drought of fishes to the miraculous hall to the fire to the fish that was prepared, every single bit of it was carefully curated to bring to Peter's memory the Lord's faithfulness and to help to restore him. But you know what would be better than even that? Is if you never went down that road in the first place. So I want us to look at the warning that we see in Peter's response And I want you to ask yourself in your life whether you and I have been prone to this. I know I have, and I'd say you have too. Why did things go bad for Peter? Why did he fall to Satan's trap? Why did he allow himself to be used, abused, sifted, and made a fool of? I think there's three things worth noting. Number one, notice his pretense. The very first phrase, and he said unto him, Lord. Now let's just pause there. What does the word Lord mean? 
It means master. We understand that in this context, it means something even deeper than master. What he's saying is not just your Lord in the sense of you're my boss. He's saying you're my everything. He's saying you govern me, you guide me, you run me, you dictate to me. And that would all be fine and well, except he's just getting ready to argue with the Lord. I wonder how offensive it is when we call him Lord and then argue with him right afterwards. You know what would have been better for Peter if he had dropped all pretense and just been honest with himself and with the Lord? The devil loves it when we're hypocrites. His job is never easier than when our life is being governed by the opinions of others instead of pleasing the Lord. It makes things real simple for him. He's able to control us more clearly and more concisely when we play the role of a hypocrite than he is at any other time. And Peter, the very first step that is wrong for him is he calls him Lord when he's not treating him like Lord. You know, you and I would be helped if we just recognize that all that God says about us is true. We're willing to accept that all he says about him is true. It's just those things he says about us that we take some issue with. And it's interesting, Peter does never, to my knowledge anyway, does he dispute anything the Lord says about himself. But on several occasions, Peter takes issue with some of the things that the Lord says about him. He's unwilling to accept the authority and the assessment and appraisal of the Lord. I'll tell you this, God can't help us if we won't be honest. A great many of us, that's our greatest struggle in life. We just don't, we, we don't want to get real honest with the Lord. We might as well, He knows us. But we struggle with that, don't we? Don't want to admit to God the things that we know that God knows to be true about us and that we know to be true about us. And the very first misstep is his pretense. He calls him Lord, but he don't treat him like he's Lord. I see not only his pretense, I see what motivated and energized that pretense, and that's his pride. He says, I am ready to go with thee, both into prison and to death. It's interesting. You'll find about four times in your Bible that someone uses that phrase, I am ready, and it's sort of a significant, a monumental declaration. You'll find that Paul says, I am ready three times. You'll find Peter only says it once. Peter says, I am ready. He had never said it like Paul had said it, so he couldn't really say it the way he said it here. He says, I'm ready, but he's really not ready. How should he have known that he was not ready? Well, because the Lord had just told him he was not ready. But his pride instead moves him and motivates him to a wrong view of the situation. Notice two things here. Number one, he has a wrong appraisal of self. He says, I am ready. I rarely feel ready in life. I don't know about you. There's just rarely anything that happens to me in life that I feel prepared for. Maybe that's a me problem. You're probably not like that, but I can't imagine saying what Peter said here. Oh, my. But then there's been times I have said it. There's been times that the Holy Ghost has moved on my heart in a preaching service and dealt with me about something, and I've said, I'm already ready, God. I'm okay. I don't need your counsel. I don't need your instruction. I don't need your caution. Lord, I'm ready. I already know. You see, the fact of the matter is, he thought more of himself than anybody had a right to. I don't know that I'd ever feel ready 
to go through what the Lord said Peter was about to go through. But you know, isn't that the way the world, or isn't that the way the flesh works? The flesh can make you think foolish things. That in the daylight of observation, you know not to be true. But we can be drunk on our own opinion of ourselves. And Peter in this moment, he's got a wrong appraisal of self. Not only that, he has a wrong assessment of the situation. It's interesting what he says. I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. That's fascinating. I'll tell you why it's fascinating. Because didn't nobody say anything about prison or death until Peter brought it up. You know what it tells me? It tells me he had a wrong read of the situation. He didn't understand what the danger really was. You know, the devil always gets us off balance when we don't understand what the danger really is. We hear stories of people under intense, severe persecution. And I'll be honest, I don't know. I, I like to believe that my love for the Lord and my, my commitment to Him is so absolute that if someone put a gun to my head or if someone threatened to cut my head off or threatened to kill me or my family that I'd, I'd keep my testimony for the Lord. I, I don't know if I would or not. I, I believe I would. And if there's any doubt, it's not because He's not worthy. It's just because I know I'm feeble. But I will tell you this, that Very often we're willing to say, well, if I was ever in that situation, then I promise you I would stand for the Lord. You won't come to church on Wednesday night. You won't tithe. You won't hand out tracts. You see, you got the wrong assessment of the enemy. You think when Satan wrecks your life, he's going to throw you in prison. Be honest, most of us ain't gotten impressive enough spiritual resume for him to waste his time doing it. Instead, what he'll do to your life is he'll just lull you to spiritual sleep. He'll just he'll just wrap your life up in complacency and apathy, put a bow on you and tuck you away, file you into irrelevant and keep you there the rest of your days. And I think sometimes we're fighting the wrong battle. Peter says, I'm ready to go to prison and to death. Lord, I'll fight them all. I'll whoop them all. I'll kill them all. And the Lord looks at him and says, Peter, you can't even keep your mouth under control. I see in this passage his pride. But then I see his potential. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong understanding and think I'm saying something positive here, because I'm not. But verse 34 instead reveals the potential in the negative sense to which he could go. The depths to which he could go. He said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, why did the Lord say it in such drastic, dramatic, and theatric terms? He could have just said, Peter, before the day is up, you're going to betray me. Peter, you think you never will, but I promise you, you will. Why is he doing this? Well, he's answering drama for drama. Peter says, Lord, you don't understand how great I am. And the Lord says, Peter, you don't understand how weak you are. You think you never would? You think never again in your life will you ever disappoint me? Peter, before the day is done, you'll disappoint me. You know, here's the truth. If the devil had his way, and if we lean on the arm of flesh, then we would do things that we right now sitting on a Sunday night service at Wall Ridge Baptist, we think unimaginable. But you're capable of it. You're capable of it. Say, not me. I never would. Go ahead and say, I'm ready. That's what Peter sounded like. I never would. 
Sure you would. You ain't been through what Peter's about to go through. You haven't had the whispers in your ear the way he has. You haven't had the lies that that he has been telling himself. You've not experienced what he's experienced. Preacher, I never would. Sure you would. Because your flesh is as rotten as his flesh and my flesh. So sure you would. And can I tell you, even a step further and I'm done. It's not just a possibility that you'll do these shameful things. But if you meet the the peril with pride, it's not just a possibility, it's a probability. That's what the Lord means when He says it the way He does in verse 34. He's saying it with emphasis to the fact that, that Peter, something you think you never will do, you will do before 24 hours have passed because you will depend on self and flesh And you will trust in you and you will do things that right now are unimaginable. That's how untrustworthy the flesh is. That's how weak your flesh is. That's how weak my flesh is. We say it'd never be me. It might be you next. If you lean on the arm of flesh. Satan would love to sift us. Some of us he'll sift. But I'd remind you, Peter was converted. He did strengthen his brethren. His faithfulness failed, but his faith did not. And he comes out the other side of it being used for the glory of God in might and in strength. Not of his own self, but of the Lord's help and of the Lord's strength. But he first had to come to terms with the man that he was. And he first had to be willing to, in that sifting, seek the Lord and allow him to have his will and his way. I hope you and I will do that in our lives as well. Let's bow together. Musician's going to come and play and the altar's open. I just want to give you an opportunity to meet with the Lord. I don't know why the Lord had me preach that. I don't, some, some things the Lord has me preach I understand and some I don't. But I try to mind the Lord. I don't know. But I do know this. It wouldn't be beyond any of us to go through a sifting process in our life. We all will probably likely face it. So the question is not if, it is when and how. Will we respond? Father, bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.